0: So in the box office smash hit, Avengers Infinity War, right? Thanos, the the villain of the story, is on a quest to bring balance to the universe. And in order for him to do that, he needs the six Infinity Stones, right? Each one is difficult for him to get, but one is especially uh, costly for him, right? The Soul Stone. Perhaps you remember the scene where Thanos and his daughter Gamora travel to Voromir and they're informed that in order for him to have the soul stone, he has to surrender the thing that he loves, which turns out to be his daughter. And and so the scene ends with Thanos chucking Gamora off the cliff, sacrificing his daughter for something in his mind that was greater, fulfilling his destiny. And it's supposed to leave us, the audience, asking the question, how could Thanos do that? And we actually end up asking a similar question for our text this evening. Tonight we're looking at the story of Abraham and Isaac, in which God comes to Abraham and he tells him to sacrifice his son. But instead of asking, how could Abraham do that? The question is often, how could God demand that? How can a good, loving God demand that a father sacrifice his son? And so that's what we're going to be looking at this evening. But to to really understand what's going on here in Genesis 22, we have to fill in the backstory. We need to understand what's been happening in uh, Abraham's life. And to do that, we rewind 10 chapters to Genesis 12. So after the flood, uh, Noah and his family populated the earth, and surprise, surprise, mankind was still rebellious and evil. Uh, But God comes to this guy named Abram, and he says to him in Genesis 12, 1 through 3, no other reason than he chooses to do it, comes to Abraham and he promises to bless him, to make him a great nation. Uh, But this wasn't just about Abram. Uh, See, the reason that God was doing this was so that all families, a.k.a. everyone, would be blessed. Through Abram's lineage, the heroic figure from Genesis 3, the one who would crush the serpent's head, would come. There was, of course, only one problem. Abram was childless. And back then, that that was a mark of of deep shame. And I don't think we're off base to say that Abram's greatest desire, his most desperate wish, was for a child, specifically a son, so that he could carry on his line. And, And so Abram does what God says. He packs his family up and he moves them where God tells him to. And then in the next several chapters of Genesis, two recurring themes show up that really flesh out the backstory. One of those themes is that Abram does some stuff that is really out of character for someone who is trusting in and obeying God. Uh, For example, right after the move, he's forced to go down to Egypt because of a famine. And, And before he gets there, he turns to his wife, Sarai, and he says to her, Hey, you're a beautiful woman. And she knew that. And he continues, hey, you're a beautiful woman, and there's probably going to be someone who wants to take your, you as their wife, which means they'd have to kill me for you. So do me a favor, say that you're my sister so that I can live. Uh, and it's pretty messed up. And, and, and so you have to scratch your head here and wonder why would he trust God enough to move his entire family to an unknown, probably hostile area, and then in the next paragraph, give his wife a way to save his skin. And the reason is, I think, because he needs to be alive if he's going to have a son. See, getting an heir was a driving force in Abram's life. It was, it was so much so that when God comes to him in Genesis 15 and blesses him and promises that Abram will prosper even more than he already has, Abram responds uh, in verses 2 and 3, Oh, Lord God! What will you give me, for I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eleazar of Damascus. Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. In other words, who cares if you give me all this stuff? The thing that I want is a child to pass it on to. I don't want to leave it to Eleazar. I want to leave it to my son. And this is where the other theme shows up from these chapters. God Reaffirming his promise to Abram despite Abram's actions. Several times over, most notably in Genesis 15, God commits to making Abram's offspring as many as the stars in the sky. In fact, there's this bizarre scene here where God has Abram cut a bunch of animals in half and make a, a bloody aisle out of them. And then God, in a vision, comes and he walks between the animals which was ceremoniously saying to Abram, may I become like one of these animals if I don't keep my promise to you. And so you would expect Abram to be rather confident that God would give him a son, would keep his promise. The time goes on and Abram and Sarai become impatient. So they come up with this idea for Abram to have a son by Sarai's maidservant Hagar. Uh, this is how desperate they were that they were willing to use and abuse hagar to accomplish their purposes to get what they wanted but once again god comes and and reaffirms his promise to to abram that ishmael hagar's son is not the son of the promise that that sarah even though she's old will have a son of her own and then he changes both of their names to abraham and sarah just to drive home the point just to be a reminder to them that he keeps his promises And sure enough, Sarah and Abraham do do have a son. The the thing they always wanted, Isaac. Which gets us to our passage this evening. Genesis 22, starting in verse 1. After these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, here I am. He said, take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, And go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains, of which I shall tell you. So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, and took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac. And he cut the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place where God had told him. Now the text doesn't tell us what we really want to know. Like what was his face like when God said, sacrifice your son? Or how did he explain to Sarah what he now was required to do by the Lord? Instead, it moves rather mechanically through Abraham getting ready, traveling, and preparing to offer up his son. And sometimes we try to to skirt around the uncomfortable nature of the story by saying, oh, Abraham didn't actually expect to sacrifice his son. He knew what was happening. Perhaps that's why he's so confident in verse 5 that both he and the boy will come back from worshiping the Lord. this is not show or ceremony. God actually has to intervene to stop Abraham from killing his son. Uh, We're told that that as he's preparing to plunge the knife into Abraham, God calls out and draws his attention to a ram that's caught in the thicket. And so the ram becomes the sacrifice and Abraham and Isaac go home together, which is a happy ending. But it still leaves us with this question of what in the world is going on here? Is Abraham a horrible person for being willing to sacrifice his son, or is God a horrible God for demanding it? And I think the key to understanding this passage is God's response to Abraham uh, in in verse 12. As he's preparing to slaughter his son, uh, God calls out to him and says, Do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him, for now I know that you fear God seeing that you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. Now, just as a reminder, when the Bible uses fear, it's not always dread, right? Anticipation of future pain. Fear, in this sense, is actually delight. it's, It's to see something as utterly valuable, the most supreme thing. But the reality is, what we hold as supreme is not always obvious to us. See, uh, all of us live with a March Madness-style bracket running in our brain at all times. There are different things that are competing for the title of most feared or the most valuable thing to us. And as often happens in the early rounds of the Final Four, when a powerhouse is matched up with uh, someone that doesn't really have a chance, the powerhouse wins. Uh, But every once in a while, there there is an upset. And and it's the same way with our value system. Normally, the things that you think are the powerhouses are. Every once in a while, though, there's an upset. And that's because we aren't honest with ourselves on what the value system is. Some things that we say aren't valuable to us are actually way more valuable than we think. And here's how you you can figure out what your ranking system is. Your actions. See, whatever you value most, the, the supreme thing in your life, you will obey it and you will prioritize it. And, and the most easy, the easiest way to see this uh, is actually how that thing interacts with God. So, so, for example, if God is matched up with something else, if you obey God, that means that he's ranked higher. He's more valuable to you. But if you disobey him, what you're communicating is this thing, whatever it is, is more valuable to you than God. Do you see how that was playing out in Abraham's life? He valued God and his word enough to leave his family, to, to move his whole family to a strange and dangerous land. God was greater than his extended family and his current comforts. But then when he gets to Egypt, having a son or being alive to have a son was more valuable, was greater than God. And so throughout Abraham's life, God continues to beat out things except one, the promised son. And so Genesis 22 is the championship match for Abraham's affections. It's God testing to see if he is the number one seed. And it turns out that he was. And so I think the question for us coming away from that story is how's our brackets look? How is our most valuable thing bracket looking? Where is God ranking on it right now for you? You There's a number of reasons why God deserves to be the top seed in your bracket, Uh, but let me just remind you of one, and that's Jesus. Do you realize that each one of us should should die, that our, our cosmic treason is punishable by death? And yet, just like God provided a ram at just the right time for Abraham and Isaac, so Galatians 4 tells us that at the right time, God provided Jesus to redeem us so that we might become his loved, valued children. See, God has done far more for you than any other because he values you far more than any other. And when we grasp that, when we, when we understand what he's done for us and who he is for us, it changes the entire bracket. Here's the point. God is greater than any other thing, including the great things that he's blessed you with. And really the only reasonable response to all that he is and does is to let him win, to offer up all things to him.